Okay, welcome to Bishop Philip Egan, who's our first uh, speaker of this year's conference. Bishop Philip, Bishop Philip uh, was born in Altrincham in Cheshire. He studied for the priesthood at Allen Hall in London and then at the Venerable English College in Rome and was awarded his licentiate in sacred theology from the Pontifical Gregorian University. He was, he was ordained to the sacred priesthood in August 1984. In 2010, he was appointed Vicar General of the Diocese of Shrewsbury and in 2010, a prelate of honour to His Holiness Pope Benedict XVI and in 2012, a canon of Shrewsbury Cathedral. The title of his talk is Overcoming the Dictatorship of Relativism. Bishop Philip. Well, thank you uh, immensely for inviting me to this 2018 Faith Summer Conference on the human vocation to love and to give this uh, opening uh, talk uh, this evening, Truth, What is That? Overcoming the Dictatorship of Relativism. Bit of a fighting title. And uh, think of this as an easy sort of light intro to the other talks of the, the conference. So I'm going to speak about three things. First of all, can you hear me? Is this clear? Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, three things. Um, first of all, relativism. I'll define what that is. Uh, but I'm going to put it in the context of secularism, particularly secularism in our British culture. And then I'm going to say a few words about truth um, and talk about some basic principles which I hope will be useful also for some of the, the other talks too. And then in the last bit, overcoming relativism and some proposals mainly of a personal nature. In other words, what you and I can do as Catholics, as Christians, disciples of Christ living in this mid-21st century. So let's begin. I've not got too many overheads and I'm trying to get most of the main points on them. So here's the first one. Um, if you think to yourself, I'm getting a bit bored with this, don't worry We'll be having another one coming after that. So, uh, so let me just see if this, how this works now. I think it's, there we go. That's the first one, yeah. Um, so hardly a day goes by without something in the media on the collision between today's so-called secular culture and Christianity. At the moment, the High Court is still deliberating the case of the Northern Irish bakers who refused on grounds of conscience and religious faith to bake a cake with the campaign slogan on it, support gay marriage. Then there was that community nurse from Somerset who, feeling sorry for an elderly patient, offered to pray for her. And for this, she was suspended 
because she was failing to demonstrate a professional commitment to equality and diversity. And again, there was a Catholic girl from Kent barred from wearing a crucifix at school. And some local councils regularly replaced the word Christmas with the holiday season. And one year, an Oxford council-funded charity referred to Christmas as the Winter Light Festival. So, there we go. Relativism, we're going to define that in a moment, or have a go at defining that, comes from a cultural context which we have today of secularism. In Britain, a secular culture is now dominant, although the terms secular, secularism, secularization are ill-defined and they're often a bit watery. Secularism is more of an attitude or an atmosphere than a fully worked out philosophy or system of thought. Essentially, it means a concern with the saculum, the world, this world rather than the next. It's about living life in public horizontally, that is, without the vertical dimension of religion, without, to use the phrase of Peter Berger, a, the sacred canopy. Secularism often has a political dimension. It's the principle that church and state, religion and politics should be kept strictly separate. As long as behavior remains within the law, politicians and policymakers can adopt a neutral attitude towards religious groups and personal lifestyle choices. Religion, beliefs about the meaning of life, values to do with self, sexuality, the family, the definition of what's morally good, the existence of God or life after death are ring-fenced as purely private matters. Most British people, most Brits, adopt secularism unthinkingly, although there is an increasing number of hardline secularists, such as the National Secular Society, who seek systematically to exclude all religious expression from the public square, not just freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. Even so, most Brits are soft core secularists. They say, let's not talk religion, that's, that's a private matter, that's what you believe, this is what I believe. They happily wish each other Merry Christmas, they tolerate, even admire Britain's Christian patrimony, its country churches, its historic traditions, although few believe and belong to that tradition themselves. Secularism has been accompanied by secularization, that is, the decline of Christianity and the emergence of a post-Christian culture. The decline of Christianity, measured by the numbers of people attending church, 
accelerated after the cultural, social, and sexual revolutions of the 1960s with youth culture, the music of the Beatles, the contraceptive pill, the legalization of abortion, homosexuality, the women's liberation movement, easier divorce, and so on and so on. The so-called swinging 60s ushered in the collapse of the traditional family and brought about new gender roles for women. Christian beliefs and values still linger, surfacing on public occasions at royal weddings and at funerals, but many today in our society inhabit a post-Christian, post-religious ethos. If in the past people said, well, I'm Church of England, today they're much more likely to say agnostic or nothing or don't know. In Britain, to be religious today is deemed exceptional, and statistics confirm this. In the 2011 National Census, just 59% of the population, three in five, identified themselves as Christian. Most people belong to the Anglican Church, 27 million. Catholics number about 4.5 million, 7% of the general population. Interesting, the Muslims are the next largest group, and they're growing at 4.8%. And then in order, Hindus, 1.5, Sikhs, and Jews. One in four, or 25% of the population, we're talking here, England and Wales, said they have no religion, although recent surveys suggest the figure is a lot higher. Even so, and I find this curious, religion never seems far away. Britain, like all Western countries, has had substantial immigration. Today, nearly every part of Britain is thoroughly multicultural and thus multi-religious. Secularism is both a reaction to this religious pluralism and a way of controlling it. It's a reaction from those unable to differentiate truth from falsehood. It's also a way of controlling religion in order to ensure that everyone remains within the law. Moreover, secularism only flourishes because of the Christian patrimony that's still embedded underneath in British culture. It's a deconstructed version of Christian morality, a set of second-order Christian values shorn from their religious moorings. And that's why its terminology seems vaguely theological. You may have heard terms like diversity, equality, freedom, respect, tolerance, non-discrimination, multiculturalism, social cohesion, ethnic communities, inclusivity, quality of life, sustainable development, and so on. All of these buzzwords are second-order values derived from Christian values. Tolerance, for instance, comes from the biblical love of neighbour, but disconnected 
from Christianity. It's become a soft value, freewheeling, expanded with new meaning, now permitting what formerly was immoral. Undoubtedly, at the heart of secularism lies its most dangerous feature, namely relativism. Relativism is the view that truth is relative. What's true for you may not be true for me. Your truth is not my truth. My truth is not your truth. Because relativism sees the truth as having no firm foundation in religion or in the natural law, everything depends on what I think or I feel. Relativism in cognition, in, in thinking, in knowing, leads to liberalism in morals. Liberalism is the view that without a firm anchor or compass in religion or the moral law, virtues and values, morality itself, ethics are determined by personal choice. Liberalism is about my rights and my lifestyle, my choice. This leads to dictatorship when an individual, a group, or the state itself powerfully endorses and enforces one set of claims over against another. After all, there's no truth, relativists say, there's only personal opinion. And this can be seen in all the recent debates about abortion, gay marriage, assisted suicide, euthanasia, and so on. What's true and what's good is simply what's legal. And what becomes legal depends on gaining enough power and influence to enforce it. The more powerful I am, the more I can get my own way. This is exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. In the death camps of Auschwitz, your truth and your rights were not as important as those of the commandant. Pope Benedict warned that a growing totalitarianism in European secular societies is inevitable. A loss of faith inevitably dissolves the foundations of ethics. It also dissolves the conviction that human reason can attain truth. Think of the British legal system. This example of it today, where the Supreme Court has now given permission to withdraw feeding and hydration from someone in a permanent vegetative state. They've given that permission, in other words, to kill people, to take away means of sustenance. Think of the legal system. It was moulded over centuries by Christianity and by the natural law. Today, it's crafted by lawmakers and politicians, educators, healthcare professionals, pressure groups, media, business interests, for whom the values of Christianity and the natural law have little weight. They lobby for what seems expedient, perhaps economic, maybe what they can get away with. And in this way, the law is becoming increasingly adrift, whilst an ever-rising tide 
of rules and regulations, often blamed on the EU, although we won't be able to do that for too much longer, is enforced that express the will of the legislator or the will of campaigners or the will of a focus group. This is a regime of state-enforced relativism. There are many other consequences, but maybe I'll just mention two in particular to finish off. First of all, by suggesting religion is a private matter, that moral choices are relative, that truth is what you determine it, secularism enables scientism to flourish. By scientism, I mean the false belief that the scientific way of knowing alone, the empirical method, is the only valid form of knowing. The false belief that religion is a matter of private choice and that science alone yields the truth is plainly falsified, of course, by everyday experience. But it seems to me if you, you know, in our Catholic schools, if you asked um, students or if you asked staff you know, uh, what about science and religion? Oh, yes, yeah, science, they'd have a confidence in that. Oh, religion, well, that's all about argument and personal or private opinion. This is an ideological stance which we I put under the term scientism. By ideologically reducing knowledge to the empirical, Scientism truncates the human person. It devalues all that's worthy in being human. Love and happiness, music, art, poetry, bravery, self-sacrifice, culture, dialogue, meaning and purpose, the enjoyment of nature, reducing it to that which is pragmatic, profitable, economic, usable, able to be manipulated. It ultimately reduces the human being to a machine. Machines that can be controlled. Machines that can be even expended. The unborn child, the handicapped, the chronically ill, the elderly, the person in a permanent vegetative state. And secondly, by driving religious expression from the public domain, Secularism deprives society of its spiritual resources. While Britain has laudably accommodated many new minority religions, the religion of the majority, Christianity, has been relegated, displaced, even erased from public life. Yet replacing the study of Christianity with comparative religion leads to religious illiteracy. Worryingly, many policymakers no longer have any basic knowledge or understanding of Britain's Christian cultural heritage. Cut off from their roots, young people adrift with emptiness within are easily exposed to temptation and once disaffected, is it any surprise that some become radicalised, seeing violence as a legitimate outlet? So let me just move on. Um, how to respond? Um, 
I think the first task is to name and shame. That is to identify secularism, liberalism and relativism for what they are, namely ideologies. An ideology is a false system of thought and belief. Eventually, as with all ideologies, um, think of communism and fascism in the 20th century, secularism, liberalism and relativism will collapse. For now, they create a toxic fog that skews human thinking and threatens human freedom. Indeed, if Britain continues on its present road, the 21st century will be marked by more and more and more restrictions on freedom of conscience and religious expression. As an ideology, secularism is not based on an authentic understanding of the human person. It cuts off the religious dimension relegating it to the private sphere, and it removes the concept of truth from human knowing and moral decision-making. As a foundation for culture, unlike Christianity, it's too flimsy. Secularism cannot sustain long-term the advances that British peoples have achieved, the value placed on freedom of speech, freedom of political affiliation, respect for the rule of law, or the strong sense of individual rights and duties and of the equality of all citizens before the law. Instead, it's generating a society without foundations, one easily swayed by emotional appeal that develops randomly on the hoof through pressure groups, legal precedent, political expediency, its ring-fencing of religion to the private domain, its eclipse of the ground of ethics and the basis of law, its forgetfulness of history and of Britain's Christian origins, its relativism that facilitates harmful ideologies that lead to the victimization of the weak, the unborn child, the elderly, the terminally ill, its positivistic reduction of human knowing to the empirically verifiable, its seeming inability to support stable marriages and family life, its growing restrictions on human freedom, and its inherent tendency towards greater surveillance and state control, all suggest that Christians have a crucial message of human liberation. And I would say that that's our task. It's to call people back to basics. As Christians, the primary response to secularism, relativism and liberalism has to be the proclamation of an authentic anthropology. That is, I'm sorry to use all these terms, but that is a true account of what it means to be human of how to be happy, of how, as a human being, to reach fulfillment. Now, this involves both theology and also philosophy. In 2005, in a homily at Mass to the cardinals who'd come to Rome to elect the new Pope, 
the then Cardinal Ratzinger summed all of this up very perceptively when he said, today, having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism. Whereas relativism, that is letting oneself be tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude appropriate to modern times. Yet in this, we are building a dictatorship of relativism that recognizes nothing as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely in one's own ego and desires. We, however, have a different goal. The Son of God, the true man, he is the measure of true humanism. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And thus, the measure, as Benedict observed, of what it means to be human. In the creed, which we said before, we profess Jesus Christ to be God from God, consubstantial with the Father, and that he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. In other words, Jesus Christ is God the Son, but made man, the perfect human, the model of what it means to be human. The task, therefore, is to proclaim Christ as the model of authentic human life. He shows humans how to live in accordance with the innate structure of their human nature and in this way how to find happiness. The task is to demonstrate Christianity, if you like, as the natural way of life. The Catechism here is a sure guide, a secure guide. It gives the church's authoritative teaching on what it means to be human, created by God, fallen in sin, yet redeemed in Christ. Eucharistic Prayer 4, I think, always sums this up very beautifully. You formed man in your own image and entrusted the whole world to his care. And when through disobedience he'd lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the domain of death. You so loved the world, Father most holy, that in the fullness of time you sent your only begotten Son to be our Saviour, and that we might live no longer for ourselves. He sent the Holy Spirit from you, Father, so that bringing to perfection his work in the world, he might sanctify creation to the full. Well, this triad of created, fallen, redeemed is central to a sound theological anthropology. Created, Catechism 355, sums all, of, all that is to follow. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man occupies a unique place in creation. He is in the image of God. In his own nature of body and soul, he unites the spiritual and material worlds. He is created male and female, and God established him in his friendship. Created but then fallen. 
through the devil, sin, suffering and death entered the world. And Catechism 385 to 421 explores the fall, the original sin of Adam and Eve, the disorder and dislocation it's caused and continues to cause as sin became universal in human history, weakening human nature and leaving in human desire an inclination to sin. Created, fallen, yet redeemed. Thanks be to God for the redemption in Jesus Christ, whose victory has brought greater blessings than those sin took away. And the Catechism, especially in parts two and three, outlines all the helps that Christ, died and risen, gives through his church its word and sacraments to help us live like him the perfect human being, and thus to find the way in our lives to happiness and eternal life. So created, fallen, redeemed, these three moments structure a theological account of the human person. They're also markers in our own spiritual lives. It's not possible here for me to develop further this theological anthropology, although I know the other speakers at this conference over the next few days will lay out, um, will surely lay that out in relation to love and sexuality. This sound anthropology needs to be subsidized by a sound philosophical anthropology. My own thinking has been much shaped by the classical tradition going back to Plato and Aristotle to St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas as well as by more uh, modern thinkers such as John Henry Cardinal Newman and Bernard Lonergan. St. Augustine famously said the human heart is restless until it rests in God. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And the first part of the catechism begins with that innate desire, saying that the desire for God is written in the human heart because we are created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw us to himself, to be happy in life, if only we could get the message out of here, to be happy in life, human beings ultimately have to find God and enter into a developing relationship with him. In the classical tradition, I've given the structure of being there on that um, overhead. I know it's not always maybe too clear to see, but um, you know, we've got inanimate life, plant life, animal life, man at the intersection between the physical, corporeal, and spiritual, and, and God there. But also, in the classical tradition, happiness is found through conversion, and in fact, through a threefold conversion, through intellectual, moral, and spiritual conversions to that which is true, good, loving, and beautiful. To seek the truth, to choose the true good, to find real love and beauty, whilst ever struggling against their opposites and discerning in history the right way forward, constitutes the very dynamism of the human spirit. 
The bold fact is that humans are made for truth. St Thomas, in the very first chapter of his Summa Contra Gentiles, argues that truth is man's highest good. This is why the root of secularism and liberalism and relativism is false, a false anthropology, a false understanding of what it means to be human. The human being is made for truth. As Jesus said, for this I was born, for this I came into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Dede added, the truth will set you free. Error enslaves, clouds goodness, darkens the mind. Relativism asserts that truth is relative, yet logically, of course, this is a self-contradiction. It's a truth claim denying the possibility of making a truth claim. A sound philosophy, let's just to finish this, also includes the social dimension. In the words of the poet John Donne, no man is an island entire of himself, everyone is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Besides being in love with God, that vertical dimension, humans also need to belong to others, to love and to be loved by spouse, family and friends, by their group, their community. As the Lord put it in the Gospel, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you must love your neighbour as yourself. Secularism has spawned a rising tide of individualism in contemporary culture. And that's where belonging to the community of the church is an antidote, the divine answer to that deep human craving. Just as Christ himself is God's answer to the longing of the heart, so too is Christ's body. The church, it's God's answer to that desire for association. Writing in the 1920s, Romano Guardini, an Italian-born priest who lived in Germany, when surveying the grey concrete housing estates that were springing up across the land, remarked how an event of enormous importance is taking place. Seeing this, the church is awakening within souls because that need to belong, to overcome solitude, the need to love and to be loved is finding an answer. So, lastly, some notes on, a huge sigh of relief, um, some notes on living the truth and living as a disciple of Christ in this 21st century century because truth is always practical. In recent times, as you know, the church has been calling its members to the work of new evangelization. And evangelization, in the words of Pope John Paul II, new in its ardor, new in its methods, new in its expression. St. John Paul here is calling for a new passion for the faith so that Catholics will reach out to others. He's calling for new ways of communicating the gospel, the use of new media, new methods. He's also calling for a heightened awareness of the culture that we live in. 
To be Catholic today, you don't need me to say this to you, is to be totally counter-cultural. A key reason over the last decades for the attrition of faith and practice in our schools and parishes is surely a doe-eyed lack of awareness of the culture in which we live, that Catholics are different, that Catholics, we are a distinctive community, that we are a counter-cultural people, just like the Master himself. It goes without saying that each one of us needs to be able to give a reason for the hope that's within us. We need to know our faith and to be able and willing effectively to explain it when asked. We need an apologetics. And this apologetics needs to be able to demonstrate that spirituality and religion will never go away. They are part of being human. The question of God lies naturally within man's horizon. It's raised spontaneously by our human consciousness. But such an apologetics would also be able comprehensively, I think, to rebut those popular myths about science so that school children especially can appreciate the interaction of faith and reason the complementarity of religion and science and the redemptive role of religion within human living. This apologetics should also address and could well start with today's hot button issues about sex, authority and the dignity of human life. They are fantastic opportunities when people raise those with us to go in through that into the bigger picture. To proclaim the truth, especially the truth about being human, means to live it oneself. Evangelization is two-way, ad intra and ad extra. That is, Christians themselves being evangelized, uh, growing and deepening in faith, the lifelong process, and at the same time, reaching out to others, ad extra, to propose to them the person and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moreover, the scope of evangelization is not only individuals, but it's the whole culture that we live in, so that the gospel of Christ might leaven the totality of human endeavor. Pope John Paul once said, the greatest challenge of our age comes from a growing separation between faith and reason, between the gospel and culture. There are now vast sectors of contemporary culture, from politics, economics, to medicine, the arts, media, human sciences, at present almost entirely unbaptized. We need to understand better how the Catholic faith relates to the cultural sectors we live and work in. Giving witness is not only about schemes, or it isn't about schemes or programs. Um, John Paul II once said, we're certainly not seduced by the naive expectation that faced with the great challenges of our time, we shall find some magic formula. No, we shall not be saved by a formula, but by a person and the assurance which he gives us, I am with you. It's not, therefore, a matter of inventing a new program. So not a program, 
but a person, Jesus Christ, and a personal relationship with him. Pope Francis in um, Evangelii Gaudium, from my favorite um, paragraph from it, put it like this. I dream of a missionary option, that is a missionary impulse, capable of transforming everything so that the church's customs, ways of doing things, times and schedules, language and structures can be suitably channeled for the evangelization of today's world rather than for our own self-preservation. But he went on. This renewal of structures is about friendship with Jesus. It can only be understood as part of an effort to make the structures more mission-oriented, to make ordinary pastoral activity on every level more inclusive and open, to inspire in pastoral workers a constant desire to go forth, and in this way, to elicit a positive response from all those whom Jesus summons to friendship with himself. What's needed, really, is an attitudinal shift from an ecclesiocentric worldview, one focused on the church, to a Christocentric view focused on Christ. As Catholics, we need to be less absorbed with the church or with churchy things, with change in the church, and more concerned with the person of Jesus Christ, with proclaiming his death and resurrection, with discipleship. The task is not, we're not here to preach the church or to build up the church's institutions and get more people into the church. We're here to present the person of Jesus Christ. It's a, a Christocentric vision. It's difficult for many older Catholics who've reared on the changes of the post-Vatican II period. New evangelization suggests a shift of focus back from the church of the Lord to the Lord of the church, and a shift from concern with the church's internal life to her apostolate in the world. And that's the essence of missionary discipleship, that move from maintenance to mission. Each one of us needs to develop a deeper, personal, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ within his body, the church. In her book, Forming Intentional Disciples, Sherry Waddell um, discusses how almost 90% of Catholics no longer practice their faith, and half of those no longer identify themselves as Catholic. Interestingly, a significant minority of ex-Catholics convert to evangelicalism. It's not because of the church's teachings or the abuse crisis or a marriage issue, but because, she says, and research shows, their spiritual needs were not being met. Moreover, statistics show how a staggering 40% of practicing Catholics do not have a personal relationship with God. They don't believe in a loving God or a real God with whom they can have a life-changing relationship. Think of that at Mass on Sunday. Half the people around you do not believe God is personal or they can have 
some kind of life-changing relationship with God. In any parish, Waddell argues, the number of intentional disciples, that's her term, is at most 5%. This suggests a disconnection, that people can be very involved, busy in the church with their life structures, doing ministries and the children's liturgy or whatever it might be in institutions, but not be close to Jesus Christ. I would argue that surely the time has come to put all of our resources at the service of reversing this, of helping people to pray, to find God, to connect with God, to commit to God, to learn the art, the art of praying, to develop a real relationship with Christ, to acquire a strong sense of what it means to be chosen by him as his disciple. We need to keep our churches open for prayer, to have leaflets on prayer, to have courses on how to pray, the basics. Catholics, we have huge resources for this, not least in the lives of the saints in two millennia of spiritual theology. Moreover, much more time and energy needs to be put into accompanying individual disciples on their spiritual journey and assisting them to grow in their personal commitment to Christ as his disciple. So, in the face of secularism and the relativism and liberalism it generates, the most effective witness is for every Catholic personally to become holy, to be what we are meant to be, to be authentic, credible witnesses, disciples of Christ who put their faith into action, not least in service of the poor and needy. It would also help if I speak to my brother bishops here, if the bishops and if the priests and the other leaders of the church communicated clearly, loudly, effectively, compassionately the teachings of Christ, showing how they make sense, how they offer the best way to human happiness and fulfillment in accord with human nature. And this means looking out for appropriate occasions, not least in the media, to speak out and to take risks. It also means engaging in public debate with politicians, planners and policy makers. So let me end there with three suggestions. First of all, at the heart of the church is the presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Every Catholic should find a church that's open, should locate the tabernacle, should spend regular periods of prayer in Eucharistic adoration. The Blessed Sacrament is not only a sacred object to be venerated and adored, the body and blood of the Saviour, but a sacred subject to be engaged with, listened to, loved, Jesus Christ. In the Monstrance, we meet Jesus Christ in person. In order to build a real relationship with him, there's no alternative to spending time with him in the Holy Eucharist. It's a time to be with Jesus, a time not only to adore him, but to allow him to, as it were, adore us as his creation, to refresh and change us, and it can change your life. Secondly, 
to respond to secularism, relativism, liberalism, we do need to study more. And that means spiritual reading, particularly the Gospels, the Word of God, other writings to nourish mind and heart, to help deepen our faith and ardour, our passion, to help build an apologetics proportionate to what we need. But it also means we should study the culture that we live in, it's music, films, TV, the arts, YouTube, developments in science and technology, economic, social trends, and so on, so that we can evaluate our culture in the light of the gospel and the movement of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, it's important to develop good Catholic friendships, to support one another, to belong to a fraternity, perhaps to this wonderful organization, Faith. The centers of vitality in the church at the moment all incorporate prayer, formation, and friendship with testimony and mutual support. So this is a sound model. The church of the future will be less numerous here in the West, but also less institutional and more populated by small bands of disciples gathered in fellowship. So to conclude, there we are, duck in Altum, put out into deep water, pay out your nets for a catch. In its 2000 year history, the church has never before engaged with a secular, relativistic, liberal culture. It's a great, a huge challenge. Yet Britain is a fertile mission field in which the harvest is rich. There may be small action groups like Stonewall or the National Secular Society, but it's rare to encounter direct hostility. It can be hard going, but there's no need for despondency. Jesus gave the church a missionary mandate to go and make disciples of all the nations. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And we believe that even at this moment, the Holy Spirit is at work in people's hearts, wooing them towards Christ and his church. It's not the gospel product that's defective, but the ability of people in a busy consumer culture full of distractions, shopping, entertainment, mobiles, the internet, and so on, to hear God's voice. But we stand within the great Catholic tradition. The message we have is powerfully good news. It's addressed to every single person. Our task is to communicate this message, the person of Jesus Christ, more imaginatively and attractively, so that everyone can find their way to that true, genuine, lasting human happiness and fulfillment for which they long. Let's pray the Lord will bless our efforts. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Bishop Egan, for that great talk. Thank you.
Uh, just a couple of announcements. First of all, on your timetables, it says breakfast is from 8 until 9, but breakfast is only actually being served from 8 until half 8, so make sure you get there in time. 